that is how I think of you as a shiny, glittery human walking through <laughs> space, just the shiniest. So I had to communicate that because everyone can't see you. Just imagine a disco ball of dimples. I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. When you are committed to a life of inner growth, you always wonder where the next layer of work will come from. And when it hits, you're more ready than last time, but never as ready as you think you are because it rocks you, it shakes you, it moves you, it makes you fall to your knees. You know your life is not over, you know you will heal, you know you have better tools than last time, but it still burns. As Liz Gilbert says, earth school is a tough school, but there's also a sense of awe to the new layer, to the pain. I forget I can feel like that. It leaves me in amazement of the human experience, the kaleidoscope of emotions we possess and our ability to better fly through the turbulence. The choice to heal our current circumstances, our past ones, our past lives, our epigenetics, our ancestors is a courageous choice. It's easier to stay in the comfort of our known discomfort. Living a fully awakened life requires us to plunge into the depths of ourselves, much like the deepest sea levels. We don't know what we're going to find. Will there be a glow-in-the-dark fish at our center? Or will it be acid algae? That is the risk. The risk that what we excavate is darker than what we're prepared for. But what is life if not knowing the magical multitudes of our souls? Why be here if we don't know our dark, our light, our neon? Yay! Today I get to speak with the bright, shiny human that is Jordan Reeves. Jordan is living life on their own terms. They embody authenticity, joy, and beams of love. Jordan started video out a library of stories told by the LGBTQ plus community to share and create a shared narrative to deepen empathy. I'm so proud of the work that Jordan does and to know their heart is a gift. Thank you for being here. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to be here. That was such a lovely intro. Thanks, Denise. I mean, I think the real gift here is the the energy and the platform and the love and the compassion you have um, and that you offer to others. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You sweetie. I mean, that is how I think of you as a shiny, glittery human walking through <laughs> space, just the shiniest. So I had to communicate that because everyone can't see you. Just imagine a disco ball of dimples. Ooh, with a, with a flare of Dolly Parton. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, Dolly did a disco-inspired album called Heartbreaker in the 70s, and it's pretty doggone good. And so that's you in an album. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Great. <laughs> so I would love if you could share with everyone sort of the story of your upbringing and sort of your journey to you. Totally. Thanks for asking. Um, buckle up. It's... Uh, <laughs> We, we start in the depths of the nation in the South, down in Alabama. Um, and for those of you who have not been to Alabama, especially those of you who 
have only heard of Alabama. I have not been to Alabama. All right. Uh, you're in good company, I'm sure. Paint the uh, picture. Paint the picture. Yeah. Well, I'll preface everything by saying that I think something, there's a real danger to something that we are prone to do, and that is to scapegoat the South. Um, the problems of this nation are not born in or inherent to the South. So there are great people. There are wonderful things happening in the South. So I just want to make sure that I hold space for all of the incredible people, indigenous communities, queer people, you know, the, the folks who are doing the work, who are spreading compassion, who are fighting for equity, who are still in the South. So my experience is not everyone's experience. Um, and I just wanted to say that out loud before I, I delve in, because it, it can get pretty dark. Um, and I don't want everybody to think it's a monolith, monolithic experience. So Alabama is probably not too far from what um, you might imagine. It is, at least as far as my experience, pretty quaint. Uh, I grew up in a small town called Hueytown. And I always say that the people there love three things more than anything else. Ronald Reagan, sweet tea, and Jesus. <laughs> so if, if that helps paint the picture, uh, great. And if not, I'll give a little bit of detail. So I am the youngest of four boys. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I was always a little different. And I think that made me magical. I didn't know it at the time. And I think that folks in my community didn't really know what to do with my magic, especially when the gender roles and the, the expectations of my masculinity were forced upon me. You know, that I, I grew up being pretty effeminate and... As people like to call me, I, I was limp-wristed and, you know, I had a, a pep in my step. So when I was in elementary school, and that's, you know, first through fifth grade, I was bullied ruthlessly. I was called names that I now embrace um, as empowering, like sissy and faggot and gay. So by the time I'm in high school, I had constructed a version of myself that was pleasing to other people. I had tried to butch it up. I had tried to like, you know, be a good person is, uh, in the way that I thought everyone wanted me to be, which is an impossible task. And I was a good Southern Christian boy. And At that time, did you have anyone that you could lean on or was this a very sort of isolating path? So it, it's a complex answer because the thing that led to my biggest oppression was the thing that also gave me the most comfort. Mm -hmm. So I was part of the Southern Baptist church. My family was devoutly religious and deeply conservative as were most of the people that I knew in my community. And I leaned on a lot of people in the church and they gave me advice and encouragement and love and compassion. Um, but I held from them the truth of who I really was. So I would cry myself to sleep at night, and then I would tell people about it the next day, but it was always very vague. I kept a journal, actually, um, from the time I was in the fifth grade to the time I graduated high school. And in my journal, I had these code words, like I would call my queerness this thing, and I would always underline it or circle it in my journal. And I would write out these prayers in my journal saying, like, God, I just want to please you. Please take this thing from me. And there were moments in my life when I would, I would go to sleep in my final prayer before 
I faded off was God just don't let me wake up in the morning. It would be easier. And that's all because I was trying to live for other people. It's the, that was a survival tactic. It was a, a mode of operation that was necessary in order for me to survive in the South. So I'll tell you a little story. I, the church that I grew up in, it's about six to 800 people. And there was this one guy in, in the small town that I grew up in called, and everybody called him Flaggett. He was older because he used to wave a flag at the high school football games, a big purple flag. The colors of the high school were purple and, and gold. Everybody called him Flaggett. And I was friendly to him. This is really before I, I knew anything. Still don't really know anything, but this is really before I knew anything. And one day, um, this lovely person cornered me and said, hey, um, you know, I, I really appreciate how kind you are to me. And if it's okay with you, I'd love to take you out sometime. Now, I'm a child at this time. And um, I mean, I was like 15 or 16. And this person who is at least twice my age, asking me that just felt wrong, felt inappropriate, felt scary. I didn't know what to do. So I told my dad. And my dad, of course, um, you know, talked to some people at the church and Basically, it was the equivalent of an excommunication. Um, we don't really do that in the Southern Baptist Church, but he was asked to leave and he was given counseling. And of course, there's this Christian counseling, aka conversion therapy. Um, he was required to do that if he wanted to stay a part of the church. Meanwhile, I'm mortified because this person was a friend and I just didn't really know what to do in the situation. Um, but if you look at it from my friend's point of view, this is a person who, much like me, was probably crying themselves to sleep at night, who had no outlet to be himself. And um, I doubt, I very seriously doubt that this person was making a sexual advance at me. They were saying, I see something in you that's like what's in me, and I would like to get to know you better. I would like to explore that. Um, and I'm an old soul. I, you know, I probably felt kindred to him in a way, like we were on the same level. Um, so that sort of tells you the kind of oppressive and re restricting environment that I grew up in. And really lonely. I think yeah. a lot of us have stories of middle school and high school of being bullied and going through our share of stuff. And it always breaks my heart because, you know, you scale that by you know, how much more like marginalized you are. Like I got made fun of for like being flat chested and all those things. And it sticks with you. It's painful. It's stuff that that I, I think at the time, you know, we're kids, we don't have great tools. We don't understand how the power of our language is harmful. And certainly I was guilty of certain things in middle school and high school too. And I, as I get older, my heart just breaks because it's, it's like, why, why, why do we do this? Like, what is it about that age of learning and discovery where we feel the need to be harmful to others, to like figure ourselves out? Like, I, I don't, cause it's just such a common thing. And I'm so sorry that you went through that. Thanks. Thanks Denise. You know, I, I tell people now having sort of lived through that season in my life and, and now I have nieces and nephews and I have, you know, I talk with so many people around the country and, and oftentimes we, people think that their experience is terminally unique, mm -hmm. that they are the only ones who've gone through this. And while it's important to recognize that, that you feel so isolated and alone, 
It's also important to remind ourselves that others have been there and that there's no benefit to playing the suffering Olympics. So mm-hmm. you can always say like, I am the one who is, who is bullied the most. I am the one who is hurt the most. I am the one who is most marginalized. But really that that's not the best space to stay in. The best space to stay in is this, is the space where you say like, I am deserving of love. You know, people say this against me or people say this to me or they try to hurt me with their words. And those things have no power over me because my my magic, my sorcery, my being is so much brighter and so much more powerful than than their hurt, their pain. And I've started to feel really sad and sorry for the people who feel uh, the need to bully or to belittle because they're missing out on such a huge part of the human experience. You know, the things that, um, I'll speak to my experience only, but the things that that queer and trans people offer the world are so incredibly beautiful. And just imagine a world without the contributions of queer and trans Mm. folks and and how sad it would be, yeah. So for people to deny that by discriminating against us or putting us down or bullying us or othering us, it's really, it's really they're hurting themselves too and makes me so sad. Well, it's such a, it's such a good mental framework shift, which is this idea of being like, well, it's like hurt people hurt people, right? So when people are doing that, it's because they're in pain. And so seeing that as a reflection of someone else's pain in conjunction with your pain, I think it's a very powerful way of looking at the world where it's like, I feel bad that they that, that they have to operate this way because they're hurting to that capacity. Um, and that was that's a big mental shift that I think takes time to develop. You also said something else that I thought, I just wanna reiterate, which is that these are seasons of our lives. These are chapters of our lives. And like every time we go through the darkness or the mud or the swamp or however you wanna describe it, it is a temporary time. And this is, I have a lot of friends currently going through some really tough stuff. And I just keep being like, this is temporary. None of this lasts forever. And while you're going through it, it feels awful. It feels painful. Sometimes you don't want to wake up the next day, but it is all temporary. And so I would love if you could walk us through sort of this, this time where you're crying yourself to sleep every night and sort of how you unlocked your magic and was able to, you know, change that sort of mindset. Yeah, totally. You know, I, uh, it's nothing that I did initially. The way that you, Denise, are a friend to others probably has power that you don't fully realize. That's what happened in my life. You know, I was at this low place. I, you know, as a senior in high school, it was probably the best year of my entire school career because I had, I just decided one day that I did not care at all. I was, I was just going to be happy. And if a bully said something to me, I was going to look right back at them and say, I love you. And I did that all the time. And it was scary at first. And sometimes it wasn't effective at all. Sometimes it just added fuel to the fire. Um, But sometimes people were like, oh, okay, we don't bother you anymore. So we're moving on. But I, while superficially that looked like I was so powerful, it looked like I was so sure of myself, but I was still a shell of a human being. I was, I'd still operated in this way where I created a version of myself pouring myself into the church. I was denying my identity. And I entered college um, really still thinking a lot about just not waking up in the morning, thinking about how I would die, 
and how it would be so much easier. I was just going through the motions and I was recently just telling a friend that a lot of my college experience is sort of a blur because I was either drunk all the time or I was high, really just as an escape. And I was just trying to deal with it all, you know, in an environment that didn't accept me and being raised to believe that who I am was broken. I didn't really know. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have anyone to talk to. So I'm sitting in a college class one day and my professor, Cliff Simon, shared his story. It was the very first time I'd ever heard anybody talk about being LGBTQ openly. And he told the story of falling in love with his partner, Julian, over the course of 30 years. When they first met, one lived in New York, one lived in San Francisco, and they wrote letters back and forth. It's a very different time, but it was so romantic to me. And then he talked about being queer through all of these times, through, through AIDS, through Don't Ask, Don't Tell, through marriage equality. And, you know, I, I became good friends with Cliff. I ended up officiating the wedding uh, between him and his partner. And Cliff's story, I can pinpoint that moment as the moment that saved my life. It was really a story that did it. So it was a friend who said something who I felt like they were speaking directly to me, and maybe he was, but that that's the moment that changed everything for me, was hearing another person who mm. uh, was able to be themselves. There's moments in life, and there's people in life, I say this a lot, that there, you, there's pre them and post them that they radically change how you move through space and how you see the world. And that's such a gift, those moments, those stories. And so I imagine as we talk about here, the power of story is really, really incredible, right? Like you can, that I think it's consistently, I say it's the quickest way to create change. And so to hear that story and for you to then see yourself in that story was that, so then from that moment forward, how did you start changing how you lived your life? Like what were the small things that changed for you? Oh my gosh, literally everything changed. Right after that class where Cliff shared his story, I went to his office and I was, I just wanted to like pop in and say it out loud. And well, let me backtrack first. So before I went to college, I had this crisis of faith. I was 18 years old, living in Hueytown. I I went out to the field. This was a, a huge plot of land that the church I grew up in bought. They were going to build a new building there but it was out in the middle of nowhere in rural Hueytown. And it was just this wooded field. And we would often go camping out there or whatever. So I'm out in this field in the middle of the day, just sort of like contemplating my life. And I was like, why would I believe in a God who made me broken? Why would I believe in a God who made me a way that I, he doesn't want me to be how he made me. And I was just grappling with these questions, which seemed so insurmountable at the time. And the reason I went to the field was I had, that morning, I had hooked up with someone anonymously on Craigslist. And it was the first time I'd ever done that. Um, But I was just to the point of breaking where I thought, I'm either going to do this or I'm going to kill myself. And uh, so I hooked up with someone anonymously. I called my mentor, who was the youth pastor at the church at the time. And I said, I can't tell you what I did, but I've done something that God will never forgive. And he Mm -hmm. said, sure, that's not true. But if you really feel that way, and there's something... Um, in, in Christian doctrine called anathema. And it means that when you've done something unforgivable, that um, you're de- you've destined yourself to hell. And I really thought that I had, I was anathema, basically. So I, you know, I was deep into the doctrine and the theology. I, I know the Bible backwards and forwards still to this day. But I had this crisis of faith and I was like, wait, 
all of this is not adding up. So I, my mentor says, go out to the field and throw rocks at God. So I'm throwing rocks at heaven. Like my shoulder is still sore 20 years later from how many rocks I threw at God. And I'm weeping and I'm just like, if you're real, if you made me this way, if you want me to be this way, so be it. But if, if you want me to be something different, then you're going to have to show me. I was just exhausted. I, I fell on the ground. And where I had been weeping, I started laughing. And there was this moment of relief when I just said, I don't believe in that God. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so powerful to say that out loud. And then I thought, oh, I can also say out loud, I am a homosexual. It was the first time I had ever voiced it. It was the only language I had. I didn't know the terms non-binary, queer, or trans, which is how I now identify. So I had that experience. Then I heard, I was still just pouring myself into the church because I constructed this version of myself. It's the only way I knew how to operate. But I was living this double life where instead of um, crying myself to sleep at night, I was just like, ah, I'm just like numb. So I, I hear Cliff's story and it's like, bingo, that's the thing that gives me life. I became friends with Cliff and he, he mentored me in a huge way. And he said, Jordan, you're, you're sort of stuck here in this mode of operation. I think he knew before I knew that I could only live in the way that I knew to live and to, to get sort of transcend that something had, had to change. One of my favorite sort of phrases is nothing changes if nothing changes. So I had to make a change and um, I didn't have any money. I really didn't have any connections. I, the only thing I knew to do was just go for it. I had $300 to my name and I moved to New York. This was in 2010. And it was like a playground. I'd never visited New York. I'd, I'd hardly ever been out of Alabama. I'd been on some mission trips. I'd been to like vacation a few places, but I'd never really went anywhere on my own. I showed up in New York and the first weekend I'm there, I blow the $300. <laughs> As one does in New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I just got here. This is supposed to be the new phase of my life. And I just buckled down and I was like, I'm not going back home. I am, I'm going to figure this out. I got a job working for a Christmas tree factory up above the Amazing. And, and all of that was in service to this greater self good, which was to explore who I am and to see past the end of my own nose, as they say. And just the smallest little changes started to happen. And even when I went to New York, I was still sort of I was going to church when I could, right. when, when I wasn't hungover from the night before. I'm completely sober now, but that, at that time it was a coping mechanism. And so I, I can sort of look back now, I'm 37, and I can look back from the time I was 25, um, which is when I moved to New York, and I can see how the smallest, tiniest changes helped me become who I am today. I didn't know that I was doing that in the moment. Right wasn't a conscious decision to to remove myself from a faith that was oppressive or to choose friends who wanted the best for me it's just things that happened you know i think well, whether you, or not you're consciously or unconsciously listening to your heart and your soul right exactly like, the, the world pushes you and the universe is pushing you directions and you're either listening or you're not right yeah we talk a lot in this podcast around people that like experiences like sickness in their body or things happen in their body like their body's speaking to them but they're not listening and i think it's such I more and more believe that the biggest responsibility we have as humans 
is to know ourselves deeply because like, what are we doing if we're not knowing ourselves deeply in this one precious life? Right. Yeah. And so to do that, right. We have to allow people to be their authentic selves, make them feel seen and heard. And unfortunately in the society we live in and the government structure we live in, right. It's getting harder and harder to do that. Mm. And we're just missing out. We're missing out on innovation and beauty and joy in such a serious way that especially with all the legislation going on right now, I feel a deep urgency to just, I want to encourage everyone to know themselves deeply. The world Mm. needs that. It deserves that. That's what we're here for. And Jordan, you just, you embody that ethos in such a brave and honest and like truthful, vulnerable way. Thanks, Denise. Yeah, I, I I agree with you a thousand percent. Just like I said, the the great work of my childhood was to construct that version of myself that was pleasing to others. And now I think the great work of my adulthood is to unpick those parts that I built for others and to let the authenticity remain. And that is the hardest work because I'm I still find myself holding on to old behaviors, to old patterns, relying on an old mindset um, because it's safe. It's comfortable. It's, it's what I know. It's the only thing I know, but, but I think adult is uh, being an adult is just a d- bunch of unlearning. I, absolutely. I, Cause no matter where you come from or what your upbringing is, there's always components that you may not, you may no longer resonate with and you have yeah. to unlearn, you know, even if it's like small stuff, like your relationship with money or how your parents dealt with money or how your parents are in relationship. If they're not in relationship, all these things that we have, that we deem safe. And then as an adult, you have to relearn actually what is safe for me and what what works for me, not just what I was told was gonna work for me, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm the biggest thing I'm dealing with right now is people pleasing. And that's probably gonna be a lifelong battle because I I spent 25 years of my life existing to please other people. So it, that is a huge unlearning to your point that to know ourselves is the greatest, um, the greatest ambition of our, of our humanity, I think is, is really important because if we, if we're just trying to know others, then there's never anything concrete for us to land on. If everybody's just trying to know someone else, then what are we actually trying? Like, what are we learning? What? Who is it that we're trying to be like? What What is it that we're trying to know? But if we pull all of that energy, that, that intellectual energy, that emotional and spiritual energy back in towards ourselves, and we say to ourselves like, oh, I have magic within me and this is what it's capable of. And it manifests in ways that are really beautiful. And if we truly believe that about ourselves and we foster it, we get to know it. Then what we see is this, it's no longer a mode of, operation that looks like promotion because I used to promote all the time I was you know I was trying to be nice to people I was trying to tell them that they were great and that you know I wanted to be there for them while denying myself denying myself the opportunity to get to know who I am it stops becoming this mode of operation of promotion and it starts becoming a mode of operation of attraction mm. so when you really learn yourself when you get to know your beauty you start to attract people that are also loving themselves and pouring out that beauty into the world. 
when I attract what you are a hundred percent. And people are mirrors for us to learn from. I've had a very rough, long learning in my love life. And so much of that process was getting mirrored things that I had to learn about myself to be able to attract and unlock the type of relationship I was looking for. Right. And we, we attract what we are. That is a hundred percent true. And so you, and I, I look at this all the time, like people are just these teachers for us to understand what is left to be healed. Oof. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I want to know based on, you know, sort of this, this long windy journey, what, what was the sort of like inspiration spark point for video out? Totally. I say totally a lot. I'm noticing, which I love. Totally is such a cool <laughs> word. It's like, I hear your question and I want to answer all of it. Um, so totally. I, I told you about Cliff sharing his story and that being the, the moment that saved my life. When I moved to New York, I started working for TED and I helped them start their education initiative, TED Ed. And we put content online, five minute animated videos online with the purpose of explaining complex topics in a digestible way so that anybody could learn anything. And over the course of a few years, um, when I was on that team, the content had been viewed hundreds of millions of times. It's now been viewed like 3 billion times. And in 2014, there was a, a moment when I said, oh, if digital content has the power to reach the world and Cliff's story had the power to save my life, what if we put queer stories online? and shared them around the world. So um, in 2014, I asked Cliff to record his story on video. It was the very first story we ever recorded. And then we started traveling around the country. Um, I quit my job and I just, I'd saved some money. Came a long way from that $300, but I had saved some money and I started traveling around the US. And I would just ask people, what's it like for you to be LGBTQ where you are? And Fast forward six years, um, we've built one of the world's largest libraries of queer narratives. And it really paints a holistic picture of what it means to be LGBTQ in the United States. Um, so we've talked to people in rural areas and small towns and in the big cities like New York and San Francisco, Los Angeles. Uh, we've gone coast to coast, north to south, and it really is a beautiful library that, that I think is so important. So that was the the inspiration and that's sort of what we started doing and what we've done over the past six years, but so much has changed since then. To your point with the, the political environment, it blows my mind that we're still getting hung up on teaching people about difference. Teach, like, <laughs> you are don't... telling me. I'm like, we're all one. We are all one. We are all connected. The othering is hard for me to understand at this point when we've seen the power of difference, right? Mm -hmm. Difference is good. Different, not only is it, does it make for a more inclusive, more innovative world, frankly, it makes more money. So that's the thing that's hard to wrap your head around where you realize it's not just about money, which we think it is in a capitalist country, but it's about power and it's, and this is the part that always trips me up, which is like, when you widen the space, you distribute power more widely, right? Like, it's like, you don't lose power, right? There's no finite amount of money in the world. 
And this idea that I have to hoard the scarcity mentality, that I have to hoard the power, hoard the wealth, blah, 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 is just not logical to me. So it's very hard for me to grasp because I struggle with them. Like, I don't really understand the ethos behind it other than what it's so far beyond my, my comprehension. I can't even try and unravel it. You know what I think it is? And I, I don't know anything again, but this is sort of my thought is that people who are in power and especially people who are wealthy, people who are rich, everything that they've ever known has been situated in that reality. So all the conversations that they've had have been about exponentializing their wealth and expanding their power. That's why colonialism was so uh, effective because you had people in power who believed that the only thing that they could do was to expand their power, their dominion. You know, colonialism would have failed if they thought, oh, we have enough now. Let's just like, (laughs) let it go. But that's the same thing that's happening today with you know, people like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, like the people who could, with the strike of a pin, fund our climate change initiatives, who could end homelessness, who could end poverty in this country, that with just a check, instead they buy Twitter because that is expanding their colony. It is so every everything that they've ever known. You know, we just talked earlier about unlearning. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine someone who is so deeply entrenched in a world that centers them as they are, centers their power and centers their wealth. It must be an impossible task to unlearn. So I know that it's hard, but I have a little bit of empathy for them. I don't like I do the too. things that they do. I mean, we're all the construct of our lived experience. We're all the construct of you know, the, the the people in the environments we surround ourselves with. I don't think anyone is who they are by mistake. I, I totally can empathize with your, you only know what you know. We don't know what we don't know. But I read this book recently called Inclusion on Purpose. And she talks about how privilege and empathy actually have an inverse relationship, which is heartbreaking. You're like, oh, okay, the wealthier I get, the more power I get, the less empathy I have. Totally, yeah. Because you end up living in more of a bubble and the people that are like you and you're you're out of touch with, I think, real world day-to-day issues. But I can't imagine having that much money and not creating impact or larger impact. I think this is one of the main points of this podcast is to redefine leadership to be more holistic. This idea that the privilege of wealth is to support and help others. That is really the point. It's not for you to hoard it and have more money than you could ever spend in your lifetime when you die. Because as we know, statistically, when you pass, you don't remember how much money you had. You don't remember like what your work accomplishments with. You sit there and you think about who did I not make enough time for? Who are the relationships in my life that I, you know, ignored? Did I do, was I a good leader to my employees? Like you think about the relational aspects of life And so much of what we're trying to do here on Do The Work is emphasize that if you don't do this inner work, you might have this immense amount of external success. But do I believe that you are happy? Do I believe that you are full of joy and you feel like you did what you were supposed to do with your soul in this lifetime? No, I don't. I don't believe that a lot of these people are happy because if you were happy, you wouldn't be chasing all these things so hard to prove to the world something, right? Right. Yeah. If we are happy, we don't feel the need to prove as much. We work from a place of ambition that is grounded in our heart and soul, and we want to create the impact we're here to do in the world and reach people and connect, but it's not predicated upon 
chasing status and wealth, it's predicated upon chasing our soul's calling. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this might be um, too niche, but I'm a huge Star Trek fan. And <laughs> You know, uh, my my original neighbor in Los Angeles was on the original Star Trek. No way. Who was it? Michael Forrest. He played Adonis. Yeah. Yes, you told me this. Still kicking it, going to Comic-Cons. I love that. Star Trek conventions. He's really uh, amazing. I'm a star. Yeah. So I'm a big Star Trek fan. And there's a character in Star Trek called the Borg. And they have a single purpose and it is to assimilate. And everything that they do is wrapped up in this purpose. It is it really is singular. There's nothing else that they do that matters. So they destroy worlds, they destroy civilizations, and they just assimilate people to their collective. And there's no singular voice in this world. It's like a hive of bees where everybody belongs to the collective. But it's destructive in that they don't leave space for for other people. They don't, mm. it'd be different if they were like, we want everyone to you know, be a part of the same ideology, but if not, that's fine. We're still going to support you. No, they just, they force people to assimilate. And their their phrase is resistance is futile. There's a new Star Trek series called Picard. And it's a, an extension of the next generation. And in that new show, the Borg have shifted their, um, this is a spoiler alert, but the Borg have shifted their their prime directive. Their, now, their motivation now is to, to help people. So they were the most powerful species in the Star Trek universe, arguably. And now they still have that same kind of power, but they're wielding it in a much different way. And in the, this most recent episode, it was the um, season two finale of Picard. They basically save billions of people because mm. they've decided that assimilation is, um, can be wielded for a better good. And I think that's the same thing for wealthy people. It's like you you have such immense power and privilege that through capitalism, you're essentially doing what the Borg do. You're assimilating people to your cause. But what if you decided that money wasn't the most important thing and you wielded your power and your privilege um, to save lives? It can be argued that capitalism is the best way to bring people out of poverty and to save lives. But... I really believe that if that were true, it would have happened already. So I think to your point, the redistribution of wealth, the giving away of goods, um, I like to call that grace. If we have financial grace where we just give people money with no expectation in return, they haven't earned it. It doesn't matter what they do with it. We just give that money to them. um, That then we'll start to see a much more holistic and humane world where everybody feels at home Um, and will save a lot of lives in the process. Anyway, that's my Star Trek rant. And not that these people, I'm going to talk about some people that not that they were perfect up the times that they lived in were perfect, but there was an understanding in the age of like the Rockefellers and the Carnegie's that part of the obligation of that wealth was to invest back in infrastructure of the country. Right. And so That's what we're missing at this juncture is no one's reinvesting in infrastructure or building new political parties or like other ways of shifting this country. We're just focused on mergers and acquisitions of other companies. And those aren't really, as we've seen, the the fine line of technology is that we don't know how it will grow and evolve and if it's going to be a tool for good or a tool for bad. 
And so I think we have to get back to like the roots of culture, which is like, you know, bridges, roads, schools, paying off student loans, and looking at ways to to take the the money we have and reinvest it in the world instead of looking at like technology is going to save the world. So at this juncture, I don't believe that's true. I think we need technology, but I also think we deeply need humanity. Yeah. My friend Tezu writes something about Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you're sort of born a part of community and then you spend your whole life trying to be self-actualized. And Maslow actually stole that idea from the Blackfoot and he inverted it. So the Blackfoot believed that you were born self-actualized and you spend your whole life becoming community actualized. So I think we we are individual in, in nature. We're part of a pack, of course, like we rely on each other, but most of us are, are at least somewhat independent. You know, we learn to feed ourselves. We learn to like do all the things that we got to do, but it's really the hardest work is learning how to support and foster community. And again, if you layer on that a lot of privilege, a lot of money, and you haven't learned how to become community actualized, then you're just going to invest all of those resources back into yourself. The things that make continue to make you more self-actualized right. can't be the goal. The goal has to be about community. That's a really interesting reframe for me. I never, I didn't know that about Blackfoot. I'll send you the link. That, that, you know, I would love to do a little more research. It's a very interesting idea to me as we talk about, you know, individual spirituality on this podcast, but what it actually means to be not actualizing yourself, but then to the larger community. I'm really fascinated by that. So thank you for sharing that. So building a business or a nonprofit, it's still sort of a business. I think, I think it's a similar issues sure. that you're similar challenges you face, whether or not, you know, you're building for profit or not. So there's two things I want to talk about. The inherent challenges of building. And then on top of that, when you're building things that are about systemic change, there's another layer of challenge that I love to address in this podcast because I think this is some of the the, the hardest work we can do is spirit work and change work and then try and bring that back into society. And there's a, just like these added weights of labor when it's work that is spirit and change work. So can you talk to me about some of, some of your inherent challenges and some of your tools to combat those challenges? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, there's a lot of books out there that I love um, that, that talk a lot about this and I could spend time listing them off, but maybe we can put together a list. That'd be great. We can add it in the notes of the show. But I think the the biggest thing that I've learned in building the nonprofit is that it's a revolution and it will not be funded because um, it doesn't exist to make other people money. It doesn't exist to make other people. Mm. Um, I want to say that one more time, though. A nonprofit is a revolution that will not be funded. Yeah. And that's actually the Woo. title of one of the books that I love. The revolution will not be funded. And the nonprofit industrial complex is totally messed up. There are a small handful of nonprofits that get the majority of the funding. Um, And it does make everything feel finite, even though resources are not finite. Financial resources are not. It's all made up anyway. But, you know, there is plenty of money to go around. Every nonprofit in existence could be funded. But 90% of nonprofits fail. And... Pretty similar stats to startups. Totally. Well, it's the same thing. I, I think most startups, they start with 
with more than just a goal of making a lot of money. There's some good in it. Somebody says, oh, here's a problem that I want to solve. Here's an issue that I'd like to explore. So I think this this product or this service is going to help a lot of people. Um, there's a market for it. It's the same with a nonprofit. The, the language might be a little different, but I think the entry is is very similar. The difference in like a, a for-profit and a nonprofit is that there's generally a return on an investment, a financial return on an investment in a, a for-profit startup. And in a nonprofit, you're just asking people to give with no financial return usually. But there is a huge opportunity for social good. And that is a, a return on, on impact, I guess you could call it. And the thing that I have struggled with most is just guiding people from this place of limited exposure. I, and I had it too. I didn't know much about the LGBTQ community when I started, even though I myself am queer. I like to say not every bird is an ornithologist, so we can't expect everyone to know everything. But I've learned so much about the community that I serve. So getting people to understand when they're at this place of limited exposure that this work is worth investing in you're not going to get money from your investment, but you're going to help people. You're going to allow people to, to be seen and heard. And now I, I mentioned this earlier. I'll go back to two things. One, I said that I was the youngest of four boys. Well, I'm not a boy, not a man. I'm human, but it took me a long time to understand that. And there's not really a place for people like me in, in our society. Our society is very binary. The gender roles, the, the gender expectations are very stringent and, and really only include male, mostly, and female, too. <laughs> yep. um, so for someone who doesn't fit in either of those identifier buckets, like, what do you do? Sort of explaining it that way to folks, saying that there's a growing number of people who are allowed to live authentically but still do not have a place in society. We have an opportunity to change that. As a matter of fact, there's a statistic that just came out last year saying that I think it was a, well, I don't know who the poll was. We can add the link in the description or whatever. But there was a study that came out last year showing that one in six Gen Z adults now identify as LGBTQ. It's the highest percentage of people self-identifying ever recorded. And it's not because queer people are new. It's because society is softening. Acceptance is increasing. And I am very encouraged, you know, even though there's an onslaught of anti-LGBTQ legislation sweeping the country, there's also a wave of acceptance that I feel is much stronger and much more sustainable. So the challenge has been guiding people from that place of limited exposure to this place of expanded understanding. Even me who lives and breathes queerness has had a 20-year journey to the, the place of expanded understanding that I'm in now. And I know a lot about queer history. I know a lot about expanded identity. I know a lot about the, the lived experience of the LGBTQ community, but it, did, it wasn't easy to explain in a one pitch session. Nobody just sat me down and said like, okay, here's the deal. And then I was like, all right, I'm queer now. I, I know everything. You know, That's the hard part is when you're telling people about your genius, whether it's a nonprofit or a business, is that you're this deep expert in the category. Mm -hmm. And then you have like half an hour to an hour to basically ex like explain everything you want to explain to the person that you're pitching for money or whatever it looks like. And you're like, how could I possibly 
tell you everything because you're this wealth of like, you could teach a college course on it. You know, you're so deep in it. And that's always, I felt the hard part was you're giving these free, almost like a free education for an hour and then they don't give you money and you just waste right. time giving free education, yeah. uh, which is part of the deal. But I think that's what's so beautiful about people that build things is you get the opportunity. I learned so much on this podcast and in life from the founders and builders that I know because they are these deep experts. And what a gift that I get to hear, you know, just you today. Yeah, that's that's so, so right. I mean, and that's why I love givers like Mackenzie Scott, for instance. I don't know a lot about Mackenzie Scott, but the little that I've read, I see where she just gives to, to organizations who are doing great work. And that I doubt that she has the expertise that the leaders of those organizations have, but she just writes them checks, sometimes very large checks, checks that change the long-term trajectory of those organizations. And I think we need more of that because there's, there's no way that I can explain why. And, and Video Out is no longer doing only storytelling. We used to just record interviews of people telling their LGBTQ experience. That was really powerful and really necessary to archive our experience. But now we're creating contextual educational materials around our experience. So we're, we're diving Beautiful. deep into the identity, history, and culture of our community. And in the face of bills like Don't Say Gay in Florida or the, the anti-trans directives in Texas or the 19 other states um, that have similar bills or the 29 states where there's not full protection for LGBTQ people, it's so necessary to have this hub of information where a queer person can come and learn about other people like them. You know, I could have very easily killed myself back in 2005, 2006, if it weren't for Cliff sharing our oral history. Well, the history that we're not taught, and this is there's so much history in America that we are not taught. It's so important to archive that and then have a resource, not only for the queer community that feels deeply unseen and unheard, but for the heterosexual community too, who was never taught this. And this is how we like bridge empathy is through education and people understanding the other, right? It can be other only as much as you other it. I think that's a really good point. And I, you know, I think that's, we always say that our audience is twofold, that we are empowering LGBTQ people to know themselves and to explain who they are to the world. But we're also empowering non-LGBTQ people to be more accepting and to, to change their behaviors in order that the people around them are more, are treated more fairly. And that's probably true in business too. You know, I wonder if Every time we created a product, we said, here's the market for this, this product. There's going to be a billion buyers in the next five years. But that means that there are 8 billion people that aren't buying your product. So what does your product right. do for them? Is, it, right. is there something that it could do to make all 9 billion people on the face of the planet better? Well, this was always my, when I worked in entertainment as a producer, I would all say, hey, that like that joke was a little offensive for me when we did like focus groups. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but you're not the audience. And I was like, but shouldn't we be asking how can we make me the audience? Shouldn't we be asking questions about how to widen the audience versus just saying, nope, this is who we're playing to and we're doing this. And I right. always thought that was such a misstep because the power of people that feel uncomfortable by certain pieces of content or dissent help us really understand more deeply the story we're trying to tell and who we're trying to reach. And not everything has to be for everyone. 
But I think it's a helpful exercise to think through at the minimum of how could this possibly connect to more people. It's community actualization, right? Yeah. You're literally not in community. I think the most powerful thing that we can do to hurt someone is to ostracize them. Yes. To kick them out of the tribe. You have to fend for yourself. And that is what's been done to, that's why it's called marginalization. That is yep. what's been done to people. You, you're not included in the mainstream. You're not, you don't have fair share of the resources or representation. The most powerful thing that we can do to help people in community is to make them seen and heard. And I got into a, an argument years ago with my parents about how queer people are such a small part of the population. And we can't expect every movie or every TV show or every company to serve them or to have them in mind when they're doing their work. And I was like, that is exactly what we should expect. Because when we lift up the most marginalized, we lift up everyone. A hundred percent. What better way to make a company or a piece of entertainment than make it appealing to, to all and not just because of the money that you're going to make, but because of the world you're going to build in the process. Uh, Jordan, I could talk to you all day. Just, I want to thank you so much for the work that you do, for the brave way you show up in the world. It's so inspiring to me. And I'm just really grateful. I'm grateful we met. I'm grateful we crossed paths. And I'm grateful you are here. And you, you fared through the tough seasons of your life because everyone can learn so much from you. Thanks, Denise. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for all that you're doing. I've, I've learned a lot from you in the short time that we've known each other, a couple of years now. Um, but seeing how you started something and how you know it was a slog and you did all of this education, um, like you said, the free education. And gosh, that was like such a labor of love. And deep, deep labor of love. <laughs> And emotional labor. It was it was unfair and not not right. But my gosh, what what an incredible, powerful example and inspiration you are. So thank you for all the work that you do, including this podcast. I'm, I've shared many episodes with many people. Oh, thank you. I always think like the, the whatever the hero's journey, these dark moments in our lives, these seasons of the swamp but God do we become. Like that is the truth is that we become and that's what makes us. And that's what I always wanna to emphasize to people is I am fully the person I am today based on that arduous journey with my company. And I'm grateful for that, even though it was really hard. And that's what we wanna tell people when they're going through the tough stuff is that it is temporary. It's not gonna last forever. I wanna jump into our rapid fire and then I'm gonna do us our takeaways, which I'm gonna repeat something I just said in the takeaways, but that's okay. So here's our rapid fire. What would you tell your 20 year old self? You are magical, foster that magic and love it more every day. What is the last book you read? I always read like seven books at a time, but um, I am currently reading a fiction book about two gay people in the forest. And I can't remember the name of it, but I will, I'll share you it with you. To, but you will get us the name. We will put it in the show notes. Don't worry. I'm also reading again because it touches me. I read it about once a year, Future of Life by E.O. Wilson. He just passed away in December. Um, so I'm reading it again in his honor. What are you struggling with right now? 
pleasing other people, trying to unlearn that practice, making pleasing other people the biggest priority in my life. Mm. What is bringing you joy right now? Star Trek. It's a renaissance for Star Trek right now. There's like seven new shows on TV. And also I've been getting out in nature a lot. And I I just learned about grounding where you take your shoes off and just stand on the earth and it like neutralizes the, the charge in your body. You know, it's very frou-frou. I don't know if everybody's into that, but let me tell you, it is powerful. Take your shoes off. Whatever works for you, but grounding is a real thing. I have another friend who talks a lot about the power of soil. So yeah. What is the best advice you've ever received? When you feel alone or powerless, know that you are probably the best company and the most powerful person in your life. Mm, Wow. That's a good one. That's beautiful. Okay. That's going to lead us into our takeaways. I'm not going to repeat that one because we just heard it, but it's definitely a takeaway. (laughs) Going to go back to everything is temporary. Things, there are seasons of your life. There are chapters of your life. I cannot emphasize that enough especially in the culture we live in, where we say, you check these boxes by this age, by this date. None of that applies. We're all on our own unique journey. We all have chapters. You don't necessarily like have one big career moment and that's it. You could have many big career moments. They can change. And I just really want people to know that. Your story can save lives. I mean, there is nothing more powerful and more beautiful than that. I don't care what your story is. Your story can save lives what you have been through matters. We all have to do our part to unlearn, relinquish old behaviors and let our authenticity remain. The other one I loved was the law of attraction versus promotion. I think that's a really big one in the culture we live in where people are constantly promoting and selling. And I think the more we get into ourselves, we feel less and less the need to do that. The individual axialization to bring collective actualization. This was my takeaway for the day. I'm about to go deep on this one. This Mm -hmm. is an awesome reframe and a beautiful way to think about our self-work in relation to the larger world. And we're going to leave everyone with the nonprofit is a revolution and it will not be funded. Yes. This was a juicy, juicy episode. I am just thrilled to start my day off like this. Truly mind blown. Jordan, thank you. Thank you so much, Denise. I really appreciate your time. Oh, and I appreciate yours. Jordan, can you please let everyone know where they can find you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not the most interesting um, person to follow on social. That's that's 100%. (laughs) That is the biggest lie I've ever heard in my entire life. That's not true. I really prefaced my response with that because I want to tell you to go follow video out. Okay, I great. think what we're doing there is way better. Um, and that's just at video out. It's one word with two O's in the middle on Instagram or videoout.org. And yeah, come join the revolution. Join the revolution that will not be funded. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Denise. Thank you all so much for listening. It really does mean the world. I call this the little pod that could. To continue to listen or become a subscriber, you can find Do The Work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere that you can find podcasts, you can find Do The Work. It makes a huge difference if you could review, share, and rate this podcast. 
Thank you to Wine Designs Media, Lenny Skolnick for that musical intro, Lindsay Johnson on the graphics, Olivia Christian on social. I am so grateful. I hope you find or continue living in your purpose. Mm-hmm.